Welcome to the Extraordinary Me podcast, where ordinary people choose the extraordinary. Hosted by Coach Adam. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Extraordinary Me program podcast. I am your host, Coach Adam. Today's guest is a friend and colleague of mine. Uh, Dan Duster is a motivational speaker and facilitator. He influences people across the nation by showing them how to develop their leadership skills, communicate effectively, and realize their potential. Dan's passions are youth empowerment, social justice, and community development. As a great-grandson of Ida B. Wells, he talks about her struggles and triumphs in the late 1800s to motivate audiences to overcome the obstacles we face today and stand up against injustices in the workplace and our communities. So welcome, Dan, to the Extraordinary Me Program podcast. Ordinary, choose the extraordinary. You know, it, it, you and I have known each other, I was figuring, since 2001, um, uh, back in uh, studying NLP together. You know, obviously, it's a huge honor to know you, and, and uh, I just kind of wanted to give you the opportunity to give the audience a little bit of your background and tell them who you are. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I appreciate you having me on the program, and yeah, definitely uh, honored um, to be here. We've known each other quite a while. I was back in 2002 when I, I tore my Achilles, and um, I, I didn't like asking for help at that time. And NLP, that program, helped me be much more comfortable with that. Yeah, let's see. So I um, and I was that, so I, I just moved back to Chicago to start my own business doing motivational speaking and coaching, and so that's what I'm, I'm still doing now. So I do uh, keynotes for corporations and colleges. I do um, success coaching one on one with individuals or small businesses because I'm, I'm passionate about helping people be successful. One of the biggest opportunities for success, especially in the African-American community, is being able to create, protect, and pass on generational wealth. So okay. I've been in financial services for about three years now as well. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Now, you, if I'm correct, you went to the University of Illinois. Yep, U of I Champaign. And uh, you, you obviously got your degree there. Now, did you go to high school in Chicagoland area? Yeah, I went to Whitney Young. Oh, you are Whitney Young. So Whitney Young to University of Illinois, and then your passion led you into personal coaching uh, and development. And uh, obviously, you're in successful planning now for well, cool. very cool. And and I, yeah, I mean, obviously, you and I have known each other since the NLP days in, in 2001, 2002. Um, and I think you and I hit it off right away when we uh, realized our characters, personalities, and and everything we're looking to create with people. Um, Give us a little bit of background of your, your personal uh, keynote speaking and obviously what you do in, in uh, success coaching and um, coaching individually in both in, in the corporate and individual uh, fields. Sure. So actually, I started my career after uh, U of I um, in sales. And so I thought that I was going to do banking. Uh, and at the time I was making, uh, so minimum wage was like three thirty five an hour. And my internship one year at Northern Trust paid six fifty. The next year it paid seven fifty. So I thought that's what I was going to do. I did. IBM came down for part of the uh, campus recruiting day, career day, and asked if I wanted to do an internship in sales. And I was like, Nah, you know that's not me. And no thanks. And they're like, Well, how much are you making? I'm like, It's probably going to be eight fifty an hour. And they said, Hey, we're paying twelve fifty an hour. I said, Sales it is. <laughs> so worked for IBM for a few years. Uh, Abbott Diagnostics for a few years, Coca-Cola, went out to the D.C. area with Coca-Cola. And then, um, so I'd always listen to motivational speakers. So Les Brown, Anthony Robbins, Brian Tracy, and so forth. And then when I was with IBM, uh, right out of college, there was a guy by the name of Keith Harrell, who used to come to the new hire training classes. And he was a, a more seasoned uh, sales rep, and he just did a, a pep talk. 
So that was 8990. An article about him in the Wall Street Journal, like around 98, 99. And he was officially a motivational speaker. And he just increased his fees from 6,000 to 8,000 per speech and was booked like, you know, a year, year and a half out. I was like, wow, like I, I know this guy. <laughs> um, right, right. You know, and so that gave me the, the, uh, the confidence to say that I, I want to do it. Uh, I ended up being a sales coach for Verizon in their call center in 2000 and was able to increase their sales dramatically. And it was not so much on sales skills. It was actually just on um, motivation and what I call uh, tying it all together. What, what task are you focused on? Um, what is motivating for the individual? So that's T-I-E. So the task, individual, environment. Um, what's in it for the individual? You know, and how, how can you help them be motivated or inspired to, to make change and then creating an environment that is supportive of change? And that was my uh, first time in a union environment. And some of the um, contention and fear was real. And so I worked with management to create a more comfortable environment that was uh, supportive of them making changes. Again, the uh, service reps felt that management was, you know, intentionally trying to discipline and or fire them. And that, that, that was not the case. So I had to work with both of them to help them understand that. So I'm like I said, did a bang up job there. And that's what gave me the confidence um, and courage to come back to Chicago and start my own business doing speaking and training. So um, made that happen in 2001. So something interesting you said, Dan, that, and, and I know this, and I, I think it's important for, for your perspective and the listeners, you know, why is it important for you know, the individual to understand what's in it for them? What's, uh, what's important to them. And on top of that uh, for the company to help pull that out of them. Yeah, well, let's go with company first is that the challenge with most training in corporate America is that it's about making the company better. And if the person is not that enthusiastic about being at the company, then they're going to have uh, limited interest <laughs> um, and dedication towards changing for the company. If the company can make it about the individual, uh, tie it, what, how does it tie into the individual's goals and, and what's the individual, that person or their family benefiting from, then it, it makes it much more relevant. People are going to be excited about that. And so, because again, if you create a better person, you're automatically going to have a better employee. And the way individuals need to approach it is I'm, I'm becoming a better person. And if you can apply those skill sets to your personal life, and again, whether it's most things in corporate can be applied to your personal life. So communication skills, team building and so forth. You know, a lot of people don't like to do that because they think, oh, you know, they don't want to benefit the company. But it's like, no. It's benefiting you first, company second. Now, how did they, I mean, I'm just interested with a lot of the, the organizations you've worked at and uh, obviously coached and mentored, uh, how open were they at that time? And, and what did you see as obstacles and, and how did you get to that transformational process with them? Great question. Uh, more difficult than I anticipated <laughs> um, is, you know, trying to change people's mindsets. And again, it's, it's people who are running organizations, so I, I can't say changing the organization's mindset, but the people who are running it is, um, and especially when I first started out, because I, you know, I started just before 9-11. And so training tech budgets were super tight for that next year, year and a half. And so actually that's why I took the NLP course is that um, I planned on doing sales and service training with training uh, budgets were so tight and I was um, so financially challenged. I was like, well, you know what, if I'm going to be broke, let me go ahead and, you know, be broke and practice doing or prepared 
to do what I really want to do, which is the, the coaching part. So, so I've always wanted to make an impact and speaking is, is a way, but I find that a lot of times with speaking, you get motivated and you feel great during the speech and immediately afterwards. And then whether it's the next day or the week, that the next week, life gets in the way and you go back to being your old self. And so I wanted some tools in order to help people support the change that they were trying to make and, and make it a, a sustainable change. And so um, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons that, that I did NLP. And again, just um, helping people achieve uh, their success. I say what, what I do with that is essentially three things and, and distilling it down from the 20 principles that we experience with NLP, but helping people to establish and embrace their goals. And so to establish means know what your goal is and be able to visualize yourself doing it. And that if you can visualize yourself doing it, then the, the chances of you achieving it are probably, in my experience, go from, you know, 10 or 15% chance to 80 to 90% chance if you can have that vivid vision of you achieving your goal. Mm-hmm. And then embracing it is knowing why you're doing it. And a lot of people, the most common thing is a, a physical goal that people want to run a marathon or a half marathon. What's that going to do for you? Right. As, as right. we experienced it. And so, right. exactly. you know, when you, when you drill down, it's like, well, you know, I just, I, bottom line is they want to feel better and that'll give them a sense of achievement. It's like, well, can you do something else that's going to allow that may, that may not be as time consuming or, or as, harsh on your body? And oftentimes the answer is yes. Um, embrace um, and envision their goals is number one. Number two is overcome obstacles, is that whatever you want to do, if, if it can be done, then you can do it. It's a matter of um, you being able to overcome obstacles in order to do it. And I, I guarantee that if you say you want to do something again, we often throw our obstacles in front of us. So I can't do it because I'm old, I'm young, I'm overeducated, I'm under undereducated. Uh, I'm African-American, I'm female. Um, and some, you know, there's some legitimate challenges, but they, they are challenges and not barriers. If you flip, uh, flip it to a hurdle, and my analogy is, I don't know if you remember Edwin Moses, who competed in the um, for several years in the 80s, early 90s. He was a, a Olympic and uh, world-class hurdler, and he revolutionized the hurdles. He won 118 races in a row. And so any barrier that you have, you can you convert it to a hurdle, you can overcome it. And the last portion is communication, which is external communication, which you talk about with words, tone, and body language. But equally important is that internal dialogue that you have going on, thinking, you know, am I going to enjoy this or not? Am I going to be successful? Am I going to embarrass myself? And all that internal dialogue has a direct and profound impact on the outcomes. And so helping people with those three critical points is the way that I really help people through coaching. You know, Dan, something I've learned in all the years I've been doing this, and you just bring up something um, masterful, uh, the internal dialogue. How do you work with people on um, their internal dialogue? Because it's it's more prevalent than people will ever admit. In order for them to admit it, they need to be aware of it. So that, that's one of the first challenges is becoming aware and becoming aware of what it is and the fact that they can change it. So that's, that's, that's the challenge. And and part of it is it's natural. One of the stories that I talk about uh, that helped with my success, I share with you, I moved uh, back from DC and I started to, I came back and lived with my parents, which I thought would be a few months ended up being a few years. Mm -hmm. And I was embarrassed by that. And so uh, making phone calls was a challenge because 
you know, I've talked to people in, on a business level. And at the end of the conversation, oftentimes they'd be like, now, is your name Daniel or Donald? My father's name is Donald. And so I'd say Daniel's like, well, caller ID says Donald. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, uh, living with my folks right now, and there was a degree of, of, you know, shame or embarrassment there. And so what I did, it was like, you know what? Let me call the phone company. And I had them switch the line to a business line. So I switched it to 3D Development Group. So I started getting my bills as 3D Development Group. I felt uh, validated. I, I felt confident. And, uh, you know, my business literally increased probably threefold within six months. Um, it, it made that much of a difference for me. And I'm talking to somebody on the phone and they're like, so is your name Daniel or Donald? I'm like, it's Daniel. I'm like, caller ID says Donald. I'm like, what? And so Ameritech had changed the billing, but they didn't change the caller ID. That's one of my most powerful experiences of the, the direct impact of that internal dialogue and your whole mental status and confidence. It's all in your head. People were still seeing Donald, but they didn't care because I was confident. So recognize, and again, this is a year after I, I went through my NLP course. So I, again, I, I'm supposed to have a higher level of awareness. Um, but I still let it impact me. And so, you know, that, that, that's helped me coach people to say, you know, look, and be aware of, of what your dialogue is. And then you can start to make changes and know that, that change can happen. It just need, you need to be purposeful about doing it. Uh, so that's important. And again, some of the techniques that we use in NLP, which is, um, you know, the circle of excellence where you have people step into an imaginary circle where they do feel confident and, um, you know, whatever, whatever emotion that they want to feel, they step into that circle of ex excellence and they can experience that mm -hmm. and helping people understand that that is totally transportable, all imaginary anyways, it's in, it's in your head. So you can flip the switch in one, in one scenario, you can flip it anytime, anywhere. So helping people be aware of that. So a very valid point about overcoming that internal dialogue that you have to make that extra phone call to overcome the objection of somebody's giving you to say, well, why do I see Donald on the caller ID? Um, that internal awareness, that feeling in the circle of excellence you just talk about, uh, I think that that is massive when it comes to overcoming the fear and rejection that you're going to get. And rejection is completely relative. Is that, you know, again, one of uh, Charles Swindle's statements, you know, life is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you respond to it. And so I've got a whole bunch of things that I do to overcome rejection. Uh, one of them is just say no is an acronym, a, a, a very short acronym for not right now, but call me later. Okay. And so when they say, no, I, I'm not bothered by it, um, which it was a very difficult transition for me because coming from corporate America, people said no. They were saying no to IBM or Abbott or Coca-Cola or whatever. They, they weren't saying no to me. But when you say no to 3D Development Group, uh, that's directly saying no to Dan Duster because that, that's me. I, we're one and the same. It, it did take, you know, and I've, I've, I do a, literally do a workshop with, on what I call re resilience. So actually, I, I developed a program called Metrics for Success specifically for entrepreneurs. And it's an acronym for uh, motivation, expectations, tracking, resilience, integrity communication, and structure. And the resilience component is directly addressing um, rejection or fear of rejection. And, you know, being an entrepreneur can be a very lo lonely, dejecting experience. And we need to be purposeful about uh, 
not making it that. It's like, how do you make it fun? How do you make it exciting? How do you make it enjoyable? Um, Cause you're doing it. And it's, it's oftentimes it is your livelihood. And so the resilience is, you know, how can you, you know, deal with rejection, which is like make, making an acronym. Um, how do you, you know, make after 10 calls, make that 11th call after 10 notes, how do you make that 11th call with the same level of enthusiasm? And it may be listening to motivational tapes and maybe listening to your favorite song, going to YouTube, looking at a video, calling a friend, telling them that you love them and, and get that support. And so I've got dozens of things that, that I do on a, on a regular and purposeful basis so that I can overcome re- rejection and, and maintain resilience. And uh, on that note, the, the other component of resilience is being able to refresh and rejuvenate. And so whether it's on a daily, weekly, monthly, whatever annual basis, I recommend everybody take at least you know a vacation once a year, five to seven days where you go refresh and rejuvenate and recharge your bat- your battery. And I, I had done it. I had not done that in a while. Now I took my own advice last year and took myself on, on a vacation for my 50th birthday. And just, I mean, literally I did nothing. Um, I, I thought about <laughs> doing some of the activities and I was like, no, nah, I just, I went, got up every morning, uh, ate breakfast, went to the beach, um, you know, had lunch, went to the beach, um, had dinner, had a couple of drinks and just relaxed. And it, it, it was truly rejuvenating. And so that's the other component of, of resilience that I recommend is you, you need to do it on a regular and purposeful basis of, of being able to refresh and rejuvenate yourself. And, you know, it's interesting, Dan, in all the years I've known you, and it's basically since 2001, two, so I'm looking at 18, 19 years, I've never known you to have a bad day. <laughs> Anytime I reach out to you, text, we call, we talk, we catch up on, on social media, it, it, everything, it, it seems to be right in your world. And you bring up something that's interesting. You, you know, you listen to, you individually listen to a lot of motivational speakers. Um, you do a lot of research in an education. Um, you know, why is that important for people to, to know how much education and research you actually do so that you can implement it yourself? So one of my father, my father's favorite sayings was, you know, after 10 years, you can become an overnight success. So uh, people, people tend not to know or look at the amount of work that it takes for you to be great in your field. And, you know, as we've done this for so long, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's thing is after 10,000 hours, you know, you can become an expert. And we've been doing this, like I said, 18, 19 years. So 2,000 hours. So we've been at it for going on 80,000 hours between, you know, helping motivate people. And so um, you got to do your research and 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 practice your craft. Um, when I first started I, as a speaker, I intentionally did not read other people's things. I actually stopped listening to motivational speakers because I wanted to be authentic. And that's one of the, um, and again, I, I say dumb with, with, with love and laughter. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever done is most of the information out there is, is recycled. And I mean, recycled in a good way in that the way you read things and can write it is going to impact people differently. And it's kind of like no, no matter what seminar I do, I'm going to have a couple of people who love me for who I am and I don't deserve it. And a couple of people who are absolutely not going to like me for who I am and I don't deserve it. Saying that to say is I may read and I'm, I'm biased against some speakers for whatever reason. Um, but that doesn't mean I can't learn from them. And you can actually learn things from some of the 
from some of the, the, the people who you really don't like in this world, but there's learning there. And so you don't have to like them, but you can always learn from them. So it's important to, again, continue, continue your education. And especially, you know, at, at age 51, you realize that your perspective changes and things that I looked at one way 20 years ago, I'm looking at differently now. And because I continue to, to read and advance myself, um, I'm able to help do that for others and from different perspectives. So education in general and continuing education means that, which, which means that you're always going to be educated. There, there is no end point. So continuing education is paramount for success. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And in my early stages of what I was doing, what I was doing in coaching and mentoring, I kind of shared that same passion where I would just shut down, not pay attention, or just get away um, from a lot of the speakers. And then I realized the exact aha you had, which is there's so much out there. Um, an, an idea can spark from something that someone says. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll make my own idea. I'll let it create itself. And I'll still listen to as many speakers that I can. And I listen to tons of podcasts myself because I get ideas from that. And, you know, I, the, the whole idea of, of this podcast is I really hope people out there listening will get an idea sparked inside themselves to, to move forward, to overcome a challenge and, and, um, and whatever they're facing in life. Now, you, tell, you talk about working with corporate. You do work with youth and um, a lot of the people in the area, correct? Yes. And so I, I haven't done as much as I, so in the early 2000s, I was doing a ton of it. Now, my primary client was Chicago Public Schools. And just the, their funding got limited. And when they did their negotiations, um, they stopped wanting to have what they call extracurricular activities during instruction time. Unfortunately, I don't do it as, as much for them anymore. But I tell you what, I did it for a suburban school about three and four years ago, maybe. Okay. And I um, worked with fourth graders. So my new favorite audiences are fourth graders and college students. Fourth fourth graders are awesome because they're, they're old enough to know you know, right from wrong and, you know, have some life experiences, but they are so young and still full of optimism and hope and, um, you know, yearning, yearning for knowledge and recognition. So I, I, I still do that. Um, and I'll, I'll do it for, I'll say it on the podcast. I'll do it for free. Sometimes I, I pick and choose what I'm going to do for free. Um, cause you know, it's financially free, but it, it's spiritually rewarding. You work with where your foundation and where your roots are is in Chicago. You know, tell us how you got rooted in Chicago. Um, my great grandmother is Ida B. Wells. Um, so that's, that's my father's grandmother. Um, so specifically, um, Ida had four children, the youngest being Alfreda. Alfreda had five children, the middle one being Donald. And Donald had three children, the youngest being Daniel. So um, I, I helping and serving in the community, it, I didn't realize <laughs> uh, it's in my blood, literally, in that both my, both of my parents. And so my mother comes from a, a significant background as well, where um, her um, great, great grandfathers and their father, so three greats, helped found a, a farm community in Pelham, Pelham, Texas, which is a small farm community about an hour southeast of Dallas. Okay. Um, so in both families, um, education was important. Uh, giving back to the community was important. Um, and having integrity was important. So that, 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 that was normal for me. So both of my parents served on boards and helped in the community. Dad worked for uh, Commonwealth Edison for a number of years, and then he worked for an organization uh, called Chicago Commons, which is a community-based uh, and uh, community-serving organization. 
Um, so that was normal for me. So all of my dad's siblings have advanced degrees. The So that's Alfreda's five children of the 15 grandkids. All of us went to college. Um, half of us, and I'm not included in that half, have advanced degrees and um, give back in, in, in different ways. So so now Frida was a social worker. And I, so in the name Duster is huge in the uh, in black Chicago and that, um, you know, all of my, my, my dad's siblings went to. So typically black folks went to one of two or three high schools. And that was either Phillips, uh, which is where my my dad's siblings went. And they were all they all graduated either valedictorian or salutatorian. So they were well known in the community. So I would say Duster and people were like, oh, you know, you're related to such and such. I'm like, well. Are you, you know, they be your, are you Ben? Sounds like, no, I'm Donald son, but yeah, I'm related. If your name is Duster and you're in Chicago, we're related. Um, so that combination of, you know, it being in, in my family on both sides, um, definitely contributed to me wanting to do that. Um, now, as far as speaking about Ida B. Wells, I was apprehensive about, um, trying to monetize that, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's, um, you know, the way my dad grew up and the way his mother, uh, lived is you don't make money as a descendant of Ida B. Wells. But I, I had a coach back in 2004 who was like, dude, you are doing a disservice to the world <clears throat> by not talking about her. And it's like, and you know, people, people will happily pay for, to hear that. So, you know, if you want to do it for free, that's fine, but know that, you know, people will happily pay for you to do that. And so that was, um, enlightening and reassuring for me to be able to say, okay, yeah, let me, let me do this. And so the, the, the topics that I talk about with her, and I've got two primary ones, one for uh, corporate, and I do it for corporate and youth groups, uh, but it's stand up for justice, which um, again, Ida B. Wells was known as a crusader against lynching, but she was really a crusader for justice. So she was a woman suffragist, um, had a lot to do with the early civil rights movement and again, of course, anti-lynching. Um, and so the biggest, one of the biggest injustices was lynching during the time frame. I always wondered, you know, what would have happened during a lynching if somebody, because oftentimes they were spontaneous. Uh, sometimes they were planned, but oftentimes spontaneous. And, you know, if somebody had said, Hey, stop, you know, we, we, this is a human. We, we've beaten him. You know, he's, he's had enough, you know, now let him live. And I met James Cameron whose namesake to the uh, movie director, but he's an African-American man who was all but lynched in 1930. He happened to have been with a couple of other people earlier in the day, and then he left them, and they ended up committing a crime, which um, included a murder. So they were all three jailed, and the first two were taken from them from their selves, um, selves uh, beaten, tortured, and uh, killed. He was taken from his cell, beaten and tortured, and literally had a noose around his neck. And there was one woman, um, allegedly in the, in the crowd, that said, you know, stop, and said it vehemently um, enough where they stopped and put him back in jail. He served some time, but got out. And I met him in 2005 at the uh, the U.S. Senate issued an apology for never passing um, anti-lynching legislation, making lynching a federal crime. Hmm. And uh, the reason that's significant is, if it's a federal crime, you get federal resources to come in and investigate. Right. Um, and so lynching being at the local level, oftentimes if you, the person who's doing the investigation, it may have been his brother or cousin or, or friend who's involved in the lynching. So literally in 99% of lynchings, no, nobody ever went to jail. Nobody was ever uh, found guilty. Um, but that gave me the, um, 
the other that, that gave me the, the notion for the stand up is that while we don't see lynchings anymore, we still see a lot of injustices. And those injustices take the many forms, whether it's, you know, racism or sexism in the workplace or, or school or bullying, um, ageism. You know, I, I've done anti-sexual harassment training and people say, hey, look, you know, I'm not I'm not affected by that, but I'm old. And people keep asking me, when am I going to retire? It's like, and it bothers me. And so there's so many things that that take place. And when I do my speech, because I talk about Ida B. Wells and the courage and so forth, and then I allow for a um, some dialogue to take place, you know, in small groups, typically two to three people. And I ask people, you know, what would you want somebody? So standing up for justice, what's one thing that you'd want somebody to stand up for um, if they see it happening that, that you would consider them standing up for you for justice? And for college students, I get anything from, you know, bullying to, you know, talking about my major. Hey, I'm an English major. I'm a theater major. And I'd appreciate it if people didn't laugh or think that was that was, you know, an insignificant major. I've had guys uh, who are pit bull owners and they're like, hey, let people know that just because I own a pit bull, I'm not dogfighting or I'm not a bad person. Right. And so there, there's there's uh, and the first time I did it, I was very scared, like, OK, it's not going to go well and people aren't going to say anything. And every so the first time I did it, I have allowed five minutes and it ended up taking about 15 to 20. And so it's a very powerful experience for people to share whatever um, justice they would like people to fight, you know, stand up for them. That's uh, incredible. I, I want to go back to a little bit more uh, about your great grandmother. But, you know, I, I think a lot of that was what we saw in 2017 with the Me Too movement. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and really what that signified to me and please, uh, obviously contribute or correct me is people finally felt secure in coming forward and saying, you know, enough, there's, there's absolutely no reason to, to, to act like this, to treat us like this. Um, enough is enough. And, uh, you know, just you, a lot of that, do you find with your, what you're doing, um, and coaching and, and going in and, and mentoring with the organizations, do you, do you see something similar or hear something different? So, yeah, I see something similar. And part of the challenge is, so we're touching on the Me Too movement is I, I'm, I'm happy to see that because I have, I've had friends over the years who've been sexually harassed and never said anything because out of fear. Um, fear out of, you know, hey, it just happened once. And again, most of it was, was not, um, it, it, it was, it was, it did not include rape. So it may have, in, you know, included, um, bad comments or sometimes some, some groping, which is bad in and of itself, but it was not rape. So they're like, you know, I, hey, I addressed it and I don't think it's going to happen again. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to let it go. Um, so I'm happy that our, our culture is now, providing for people to do that. And again, part of the challenge is we've had a male-dominated and primarily white male-dominated workforce for decades. And so there's a sense of entitlement, like, hey, we've been doing this forever, and now you're making us change. <laughs> right. And my analogy is, you know, it has to change. And, you know, when guys are together, we can do certain things. And my analogy is a road trip. When I road trip with my brother, my actual brother or fraternity brothers, we can say whatever we want in the car. And that's what we do. And it's fun. And if we have a female in the car, then we have to act differently. We feel restricted. Mm -hmm. And so if you've been doing something in the workplace forever and it was fun and, you know, that's what you do, then you think that you're entitled to it. And the reality is that, that, that you're not, is that 
people are entitled to a comfortable workplace and a professional workplace. And so, you know, like the, with the, the work that I've done over the years is um, it, it's, it's, it's heartwarming to see that people are, are now comfortable coming forward and demanding that their workplace be professional. Um, so I think it's, it's going to make, so again, for people who, men or, or women, I've, I've, I've had a guy, a, a male friend of mine who worked with all women and they can be just as, um, difficult to be around as men. <laughs> they can be just as vulgar and talking about what they want. So it's when you're the, and I'm using my air quotes here, the minority that you're most impacted. And so, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the way things are going while we still have a long way to go happy with the way things are going. You know, I, it's, it's interesting when I'm, uh, when I'm at work or uh, anywhere, I, I say I'm a CSO, I'm a common sense officer. And it, it seems like Dana, in your opinion, would be very welcomed here. It seems like we're missing a common sense button when it comes to humanity, when it comes to being professional, when it comes to just understanding, regardless of what gender what um, race, uh, what religious background, uh, we can have a common understanding that we can really inspire each other to accomplish everything we want to and develop a level of respect to get that goal done. I mean, please give me some feedback and what your thoughts are on that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, studies will prove again and again when people are comfortable and feel valued, um, they're going to perform better. It's going to be a better environment. You're going to have higher retention. You're going to have more productivity because, um, you know, that's, that's human nature. <laughs> you know, if you're stressed or miserable and, and I left a job, um, in 2000 or 99, you know, it, was, it was 99, mm-hmm. um, where I, I ignored my, my common sense and, um, had a manager who did not have nearly the integrity that, that I needed to work with. And I left. Um, so yeah, when, when people, are again are comfortable and feel valued and respected they're going to perform better and you know the, the common sense you know one of my aunts used to say common sense ain't common and so you you know you don't blame people for, for their first incident but you know when you know better you can do better so after you learn hey this is offensive then you need to do better yeah. and so that's the other thing that, that people get <laughs> um frustrated by is that the the Anti-sexual harassment language, um, or, you know, language in the workplace, which can include anti-sexual harassment and, or anti-harassment, uh, feels so restrictive because it's like, man, I can't say anything. I'm like, well, the language has to be like that because people are grown ass kids sometimes and still want to get away with stuff. Right. And use the analogy of literally of children. It's like, you know, you, you're, you're hitting your brother and say, well, stop hitting me. And then you just, you know, you touch him and then, um, they say, well, don't touch me. And then you go put your finger as close as possible, <laughs> right? Just because you, you want to antagonize them. And so that, so as a parent, it's like, look, just stop doing anything that's going to antagonize. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. And uh, unfortunately, that's the way the language needs to be as far as anti-harassment, because people will do certain things. And it's like, well, I can't tell a, a sexist joke on cam- campus. Like, what am I just, if I'm just talking to my friends, like, this is a professional work environment. And as long as you were on campus, you need to be professional because people would say, well, I'm not saying this to this person, but they say it loud enough so that the other person who they're trying to antagonize can can hear it. So it's going to affect them. It's 
it, it, it can feel frustrating um, and very restricting when you look at it. And some people complain about it, but it's it's necessary because so many people out there. And again, this is what good people have difficulty believing is that so many people have bad intentions that the laws need to be out there to protect those people, uh, those people from being victims. Agreed. And, you know, I uh, kind of rewinding a little bit, uh, done a lot of research on your great grandmother, um, you know, just uh, where she was born. Uh, and obviously she went to Memphis. Uh, she worked in the school district there, created um, a, a press where she wrote, you know, one of the things that uh, I kept hearing about uh, your, your great grandmother, Ida, is um, passion, absolute passion for justice. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I always tell people, and, and I'm sure, you know, you've probably on the same level, tell me what you're for, not what you're against. Um, you know, kind of talk about that passion for justice that that she created, because she had, uh, I mean, a lot against her, especially in that time. I mean, she was born in 1862 and, and, and three years before Emancipation Proclamation gets passed. Talk about what she grew up with and how she had to have that passion for justice and what I call a um, a mental immunity. You know, immunity is when you build a resistance to things that are going on around you. Um, we learn that in medicine. Um, sure. You know, obviously, she was a pioneer developing that mental immunity to stand up for what was, you know, should be common sense um, mm-hmm. and, and justice. So talk about that. Sure. So she, again, as you mentioned, born in 1862. So she was born as a slave. Her, her parents were slaves. Her father, uh, Jim Wells, was actually the product of a slave master going into the slaves' quarters. Um, he got somewhat preferential treatment. He was a carpenter. Um, and his wife, Lizzie, um, you know, they were in, in Mississippi. So um, her mom's family was um, sold off at slavery. So her mom had siblings who she, you know, knew for as children, and they got sold off and she never saw them again. And so <clears throat> that's one of the reasons Ida was passionate about family. Her father was involved. Um, so as soon as slavery was over, their parents sent the kids to school. So I, Ida was the oldest of eight children. Um, one passed um, early, uh, shortly after birth. So technically seven, oldest of seven. Um, but they sent the, so the parents sent the children to school. Um, now that it was legal after slavery and uh, went to school as well until they could learn to read. And um, Jim was involved in uh, the community and in politics. And so a couple of things that happened is that, so of course he was a sharecropper and he said that he was going to vote. And the owner of the property said, if you vote, you, <laughs> I'm kicking you off of the property. Jim voted and he, the owner kept his word and kicked him off the property. Um, and so certain things like that, you know, that happened in with her parents, she was like, wow, you know, this, this is messed up. You know how, <laughs> um, so th- those absolutely impacted her, um, because she was educated at the age of, so yellow fever went throughout the South, through, throughout the country, especially the South mm-hmm. in 1878. <clears throat> and at the age of 16, she lost both of her parents and, uh, one of her other siblings and so there were five siblings under her remaining and so the extended family it was like okay well 
let's have two people live here, one person live here, and then there was a, a boy with special needs, and you know, we'll take care of him. And I was like, no, you're not splitting up my family. Um, you know, based again, her her passion for keeping the family together based on her mom's experience. And so Laura has it that uh, she grabbed a shotgun <laughs> eventually. It was like, look, I'm taking care of my family. I'm like, okay, we got you. So, of course, there, there was extended family support, but the family stayed together as a unit. And I, Ida would commute um, to a, a school um, about 40 miles away and work there during the week and come back on the weekends and, you know, provide finances for the family. Um, she used to read. Because again, still most black people were, were illiterate at the time. So she used to read um, at community, you know, town hall meetings and so forth. She'd read the newspaper and she'd do a little theater as well. So at a younger age, she appreciated that. And then um, she um, moved to Memphis and became a school teacher and, and would write some articles for free as, as a freelance. And then she wrote an article about the Memphis school district saying that there was woefully inadequate and that the black schools were woefully under underfunded, overcrowded, so forth. And unfortunately, things that are relevant <laughs> in today's school system, almost 150 years later. Um, but so they did, so she didn't get fired, but they didn't renew her contract the following year. Right. So she was somewhat forced into finding a job. And so she approached the owner of the Memphis free speech and um, said, hey, I want to write and I'll get co-ownership. And so they worked out a deal. And so she was co-owner of the Memphis Free Speech. And that was like 1889 that that happened. And in 1892, media was very different back then. The, the source of news was the newspaper. Being a journalist at the time, she actually had a couple of three friends who were lynched. So it was uh, they were co-owners that so three men there's probably about a dozen total owners of a grocery store that happened to be across the street from a, a grocery store that a racist racist white man owned that one yeah mm -hmm. so bottom line is um there was a, a, a couple of incidents that led to um white men trying to destroy that store the owners defended themselves inside the store and what ended up a white man being uh, getting shot. So they rounded up all the black men in that area, put them in jail. And then there was a uh, actually a black militia in uh, the South at that time. And so they came um, to protect the, the men in, in, in jail. And then once finding out that the white man was going to survive, the militia left. That night, uh, the townspeople went and got those three store owners, um, who happened to be Calvin... Uh, McDowell, uh, or so Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and William Stewart. And Ida was so close to um, Thomas Moss, she was actually a godmother to his child. So, I mean, just, they were tight. And so she was out of town when it happened, but, you know, those three men were lynched, and she read the report, and she's like, you know, conspiracy to kill, pretty much it was cons cons conspiracy to kill white men. And she's like, what? No way. And found out that a lot of the prominent people in town were involved in the lynching. So she's like, well, if they're lying about this, then how many other lynchings are they lying about? Right. And so she was literally pretty much the country's first investigative journalist and went and investigated over 200 lynchings and posted the findings. Um, and most of them were not warranted. Um, and again, lynching by definition means it, it, it took place without, um, without any legal 
um, any, any law enforcement or, or without going through a, a trial. Mm-hmm. So now whether it was justified, you know, not doubtfully, but her investigations proved that most weren't and that the accusations were oftentimes false, including some accusations. One of the more common accusations would be of a black man raping a white woman. And so she literally talked to the women. It's like, no, there was no sex involved. Or sometimes if there was sex, it was consensual. And she published that. And so it's suspected she was intentional about being out. So she went to New York when that article came out. (laughs) And uh, her her, uh, printing press was destroyed. And they promised that, hey, whoever wrote this, when they come back, we're going to lynch them too. So she didn't return to the South and specifically Memphis um, for decades. So from New York, um, she actually traveled to Europe, um, to England and Scotland to uh, shine the light of the dastardly things that were happening in America. So unfortunately for lynchings, you know, they'd oftentimes take a picture of the lynching, like you do with a, a big Florida marlin or standing next to a bear, you know, after hunting, they do that. So she took those post- postcards and like, here's what's happening with the Negro in America. And she initiated uh, some boycotts of America, um, showing that this is what's happening. And, and at the time, of course, the U.S. is the biggest producer of cotton and England and Scotland were some of the, uh, the biggest consumers of it. So did that and then came to Chicago in 1893-94, for the uh, World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition. Mm-hmm. Met Ferdinand Barnett, who was a prominent um, African-American attorney in civil rights. And um, they met and uh, had four children together and continued to advocate for civil rights and other rights um, until she died in 31. And I think he, he died in, he died when my dad was 13. So I think he died in 45. The end of World War II. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me, um, her journey. Uh, I mean, I've uh, obviously, like I said, I've studied not not nearly knowing as much as you do, <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. you know, just studying a lot. It, it's she couldn't quit. It was like she she knew what she uh, she knew her mission. She knew what she mm-hmm. was here for and she knew what she had to do. You brought up something interesting, Dan, about how she knew she was going to learn, lose her job at the grade school. And mm-hmm. she, she knew she had to get a job elsewhere. And that's when the mm-hmm. free, free press was available. You know, it, I call those critical points to, to a lot of the kids and, and youth that I work with. The critical point is when you're forced into a decision or, or forced into a point by decisions you make, or you are forced into a point from decisions by other people and behaviors by other people. And mm-hmm. she knew she had to make a change, which was her critical point. And, and, and there, wow. We get into the Memphis Free Press and, and kind of the rest is history from there. But it wasn't easy. It was never easy for her because she knew what she, her mission was and she knew what she was up against. And, you know, there was still so much hatred and bitterness um, throughout that time. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing. So I'm actually traveling to New York next week. There's a organization um, sponsored by Ancestry to, to talk about because this is the represents the. Um, 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment being passed where women get the right to vote. Okay. And um, <clears throat> the a common question I get is, you know, what's something that people don't know? And it's not much in the way of family history, but in the way of history itself and about Ida is that she did not have a lot of support. So 
again, being an African-American female. So as an African-American, you know, she didn't get a lot of support from majority white people. Um, and being a woman suffragist. So, um, which again is a dark part of our history that people don't like to acknowledge, but a lot of them were for racist. So they wanted white women's rights. They didn't want all women's rights. So, um, and being married. So being a suffragist, you know, going for women's rights, they were like, well, you can't be married because, you know, now you're subservient. And it's like, no, <laughs> I, I, I can, I can do this. And fortunately she married somebody. So uh, again, Ferdinand was, uh, you know, all about women's rights, equal rights, civil rights. So, um, and, and he wanted, he, he, he was a widower actually, actually, and had married a uh, powerful black woman who went to Michigan, one of the first female graduates there, African-American female graduates there. Oh, okay. So he wanted another powerful, forceful woman. So when he met Ida, she, he was like, you're it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's what uh, I say a lot of people don't realize in that. So for her and, you know, um, some and, and some black men would lie about her and say, you know, about her virtues and say that she was, um, you know, sleeping around or, or doing this. And, you know, again, when you, when you look back at our heroes and sheroes, the assumption is that, you know, they emerged and there was a groundswell of support and, and quite the opposite for her is that she had a lot of opposition. You know, that's, that's uh, very powerful for you to say, because I do know a lot of people that are looking to, to grow who they are in this world. And, you know, the more you grow, the more the haters come out and you, you know, you're, you're going to have to deal with that. So that's just inspiring to know, you know, here, here's this absolutely wonderful woman whose passion is justice and she's doing incredible things for this country and world. And they've just got haters of all denominations coming out and, and, and basically just making up stuff and, and kind of coming forward and saying that this is what she's doing. This is what she's about. And it, it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And she was uh, on Ida too. She was really as much for women's rights as she was for African-Americans. Correct. Oh, absolutely. That uh, people just forget that she was both for women and for African-American. And, and I think that that's just, I mean, it, it paved the way for a lot of what we see today and it's, the path is never easy, but you know it had to start somewhere. And I mean, that's that's why she's such a pioneer, and it's it, it's awesome that you keep that legacy alive. So, the question I would ask then, Dan, is how do you at, at fifty one? You said uh, you know how do you have you kept it alive, and how do you continue to plan to keep it alive uh, going forward? Sure. So there's a few. So as I mentioned, um, fifteen grandkids, two, two have passed, so thirteen grandkids from. Um, Alfreda, who's her daughter. And then we've got some other ones, um, from one of her other, uh, children. Um, but pretty much it's my sister, myself, and then, um, another cousin of mine, who's the great, great granddaughter. Um, we're, we're the ones who are doing most of it in the way of my sister's actually written a couple of books. So I'm in the process of writing a book called Ida is Inspiration and talking about um, you know, how, how, what her principles or values were and how they've influenced me and then subsequently how they can influence other people and hopefully provide inspiration, motivation or, or values and guidelines for others. Um, so yeah, I've, I've spoken about her pretty much since college, you know, um, again, sometimes for a fee, sometimes for free again, since, uh, really 2004, uh, has been the professional, uh, speaking, uh, 
uh, for her or about her. Um, the, the, my parents, my dad's generation started the Ida B. Wells Memorial Foundation in the 80s, um, really just as a way for people, because again, people will sometimes say, hey, how, how can I support? And they said, okay, well, let's set up the foundation as a vehicle for people to make donations. And they gave out um, some awards in journalism for a few years. And now um, the next generation, primarily myself, my brother and sister, run the foundation and we give out scholarships. And so um, Ida went to um, Rust College, um, in, which is in uh, Holly Springs, Mississippi, and um, which used to be Fisk. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's been Rust for, for um, since the late 18, 1800s. Um, so we give out, and, and their, their tuition is only about $6,000 compared to U of I's like 30. So we give out uh, uh, three $1,000 scholarships to um, sophomores or juniors who reflect uh, leadership and character and some other values on and off campus. And we also just started one a few years ago, giving one out to as a Donald Duster scholarship through the I.B. Wells Memorial Foundation to an African-American male. Um, <laughs> and so technically a, a male who's gone to a Chicago public school um, because from the Michigan case years ago, you can't give it out specifically for an African-American person, but you can say these zip codes and chances are it's going to be an African-American male. But that's the legacy that we want to have with my father being an African-American male who graduated from a Chicago public school. Mm -hmm. um, so and then again, what's what's exciting and frustrating is Black History Month is, you know, you get a lot of requests to do things. So I've, I've got a few things that I'm doing. My sister's out of town right now in Detroit um, at a function. I said, I'll be going to New York next week. So speaking as much as possible, um, I'm going to be starting the IDB Wells Leadership Institute. Um, I, 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 I've got a lot on my plate right now, but I'll, I'll so, and Adam, I'll hold you uh, to, as my accountability partner okay. to, for me to get started. And let's say by July, I, I will start the IDB Wells Leadership Institute. and. What I want to do with that. So I've done a, a life, what I call a life readiness program on and off since the 90s, which is going into schools, talking to youth um, and giving them life skills. So talking about goal setting, self-esteem, positive attitude, you know, being courageous, standing up for justice and so forth. And so, um, again, my, my new favorite target is fourth graders, <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll, I'll apply it for um Pretty much any anybody fourth grade through college, um, kindergarten through third is not my skill set. If somebody else can join me on that, <laughs> yep, I'm, huh? I'm willing to do it or have them do it. But that that's not my skill set. Yeah, well, it, uh, me being a dad, I can help you with that because uh, I, I, <laughs> four I had to go through with kindergarten and, and above. So um, right, <laughs> we, we can definitely talk about that. So two things: number one, where do they find out information about? the Ida B. Wells scholarship uh, and Donald Duster scholarships. And then two, tell us about um, B. Wells leadership um, uh, that you're looking to put together in, in July-ish. Um, tell us what that's going to entail and, and where people could uh, get information on that too. All right. So full commitment. So um, Ida B. Wells Foundation, you can find information on that, on the scholarships at Rust and so forth at Foundation. Dot org. So that's IBWfoundation.org. And um, 
what I'll do is put some information. The uh, so when I get the the leadership institute going, I will have information on that on the website as well. Okay, so that'll all be on the website. Perfect. Thank you for so much for everything. I know you're a busy individual, and and obviously you know, our our friendship goes uh, almost twenty years at this point. So it's been an absolute honor having you on the podcast, uh, getting your message out. Uh, you truly are. Um, someone who has always chosen the extraordinary um what what's the advice you have for people today in in, in light of everything going on and we know this is black history month um you know we sit on the eve of abraham lincoln's birthday um what's what's your message for people out there today that they need to know when it comes to justice when it comes to um being an extraordinary person a kind person uh give us your message Sure. So for, let's start with justice and then talk about extraordinary. So for justice is, um, you know, part of it is, is, is integrity, which I define as knowing what's right and doing what's right, even if no one is watching and even if you don't feel like it. And so you know, I think oftentimes in our gut, we, we know what's right. Um, and sometimes we, we don't act on it or we'll justify or, you know, come up with a reason why we don't feel like doing it or, you know, well, no, that wasn't for me. It's like, no, hold yourself accountable uh, to, to have integrity. And it's one of the most difficult things to do on a consistent basis. That's, that's something that I still work at. And I remember doing a workshop years ago and there was a guy that just exuded integrity. And he said, that's the number one thing that he works on. And I was like, wow, like you work on it. Like it just seems to come natural for you. And he's like, no, nah, you know, I, I work on it all the time. And so I'd say, you know, Having integrity, um, and if you have integrity, then justice will come naturally, and the pursuit of justice will come naturally, um, because that, that's if part of integrity is you know knowing what's right and doing what's right, and, and justice about is is about doing what's right. So that's my my thing on justice, and um, have the, have the courage to again um, not silently condone bad behaviors. And so whether it's a joke and I can think of, you know, jokes that I've heard over the years, and I'm like, you know what? I can't laugh at that. And a way to address when you see an injustice is to my coaching to that is, hey, I, I know you, you, you meant that with positive intent. Um, or you, you may not have realized it had a negative impact on me, but it did. And so whether it's listening to a, a racist joke, sexist joke, mm-hmm. I remember back in the day, people were telling um, Jeffrey Dahmer jokes, you know, the serial killer in the um, late eighties. And it was like, you know, I can't laugh at that. So to directly address when you see something that that's uh, an injustice in, in any capacity. And again, you can't, you can't address each and every one. So choose your battles, but battle, you got it. You got to battle sometime. You, you can't, you can't choose no battles. And you, I, I don't want to uh, cut you off, but you bring up something vitally important to me is you know, something you used to laugh at, but you can't laugh at anymore. I I want to get your opinion on so many people live in the universe of, well, guess what he said on Twitter in, you know, 2008. Um, you know, right. what's your viewpoint on, I know I have mine, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious because I really want to hear it for you, from you, excuse me. What's your mm-hmm. viewpoint on people growing, learning from what they may have said in the past or what they may have done in the past? You know, how do we as a society give them the opportunity to grow to realize they might not and probably are not the same person they were when they made that comment or they made that joke? 
so you got to look at so I uh, think great question and I just watched I don't um, so I'm a ESPN um, so sports I'm, I, I like but the thirty for thirty series are, are have all been incredible right and so they just did a two part series on Michael Vick and so he's I mean so what he did with the dogs was absolutely horrific um, and you know people they literally interviewed people was like. He should he should be executed because of that. So that's absolutely extreme. But that was normal for him. I mean, so his 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 community they they had dog fighting. You know, the the people he was rolling with his 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 friends, his posse, his crew. You know, were dog fighters. So that that was normal. So it literally wasn't until he got caught he understood how wrong it was. I mean, so there's some things that people doing. Think, yeah, this is kind of bad, but it's not horrible. So he didn't know it was that horrible, and. He has been very intent and purposeful about partnering um, with not PETA, but uh, I can't remember the other organization um, that's about, you know, protecting animal rights. And um, Yeah, I don't know. The, I can't think of it now, but I, I know where you're, what you're saying. Yeah. So and, he's, and, he's, so, and again, after retiring, he still talks about it because he's like, you know, I, I know that I'm unpopular and that uh, especially black youth will listen to me through last year. He's still um, he's still doing talks saying, hey, dog fighting is bad. And, you know, here are the right things to do. So he's a completely different person than he than he was, you know, when he got caught dog fighting. So it's looking at people's actions and making sure that they are consistent with who they say they are. So, again, some people, you know, will say that I'm changed, but they haven't. To me, an example is Roseanne Barr. Again, I'm sure this is going to be controversial, but to me, she's been consistently um, had, had racist tendencies. Mm -hmm. And the only reason she's sorry right now is that, you know, she lost her show. Her spinning after the, you know, doing the, the uh, Star Spangled Banner, you know, so those types of things is like, okay, you can't do all these things consistently. And then just because you lose something, now you're sorry. So when you see those opportunities for enlightenment and, you know, people take them and, and do change, I think that's it. So from what I've seen with um, Paula Dean, I think that she's genuinely sorry. So I, I don't know all of that, but from what I've seen with, with her, I think she's genuinely sorry. Whether she is or not, hey, you, you never truly know. So part of it is, you know, looking at their, their actions and seeing if they are both sincere with their apology, which... You know, it's it's difficult with actors because that's that's their that's their livelihood. Right, right. <laughs> is to convince you of something. So looking at their actions and making sure that they're consistent. But yeah, I'm I'm all about I, I'm I am about forgiveness because again, I, I think one of the biggest challenges in our society um, is lack of forgiveness and um, of whether it's um, it comes comes down to racist statements or criminal activity. And again, you know, for felons to be ostracized and restricted for the rest of their life for something that they, they did, you know, when they were as, as a teenager is unfortunate. And we're the only society that does that. Correct. So we, we need to be much better at forgiving both um, from an emotional, spiritual and legal standpoint. Agreed. And I, you know, just to piggyback on that statement, Dan, is uh, I remember when I went uh, and was mentoring kids in the Illinois Youth Corrections Facility, the very first word when I met these kids, and I worked with them for a long time, was, um, I don't want to know what you did. You you chose an action. You had a behavior. Um, all I care about is where you want to go from here. And we, that was our agreement. 
for the time I was with them, which was months, they never told me what they did. Um, we only worked on being extraordinary and, and transforming their life. And, and I just want to echo what you said, because I'm very passionate about that myself. And that's why you and I are, are pretty close, I believe. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So lastly, about choosing extraordinary is the metrics for success. Again, motivation, expectations. Expectations is the second thing that I talk about. And part of it is, you know, when you have a relationship, you know, a new relationship, how do you communicate expectations? So whether it's a professional relationship or personal relationship, you know, things just go a lot smoother when you know what to expect. If you call me, I'll I'll call you back in, you know, professionally, I'll call you back in 24 hours or I'll do this. And, you know, I'll I'll be on time. If I'm more than five minutes late, I'm going to let you know. Equal or or more important is um, having high expectations of others and ourselves. And the one example that I have, and again, I'm adamant about it, is having high expectations, especially for our uh, children who are challenged. And again, um, whether they're challenged at home or whether they're, and again, I, I use my air quotes here with labeled, I think especially with the young black boys, they get labeled and that gives them entitlement to act a fool. So I was at a school on the West side for several years and one of the aerial instructional officers so the, the so you've got the you know teachers and then the principal who runs the school and then you have an aerial instructional officer who's responsible for f- 15 to 20 schools or so uh, she happened to be there that day um, and she noticed the interaction that I had with the students in general specifically the the labeled students who were, were in a separate room and she's like you know what are you doing because she saw that they were well behaved I'm like I hold them the same expectations I don't care what you're labeled you still know what respect is you still want to be loved and valued. And so I, I show them respect, love, and value, and they give me the same in return. I, I've got to be more patient with them because some of them do have some emotional problems that, um, again, we can have another conversation on that about uh, mental health issues mm-hmm. and how um, that's regarded or, or labeled and, you know, it's difficult. But um, there, there, there are some mental health issues and we need to address it. But expectations can still be there. And so are we holding our children to high enough expectations and subsequently, which is getting to the extraordinary, are we holding ourselves to high enough expectations? Is that God has made each and every one of us phenomenal, amazing, extraordinary. They didn't make people to be average. Now, you may have a, a quote, average job. It's, there's something about you that is absolutely amazing. And it's up to you to choose to operate in that, operate in whatever your amazing is. Again, God has given me some phenomenal gifts. I've got, uh, I know I have a powerful voice. I have the ability to influence. Now, dance or being an athlete or being a, a, a you know, um, I'm not a, I'm not a great handyman. I'm, 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 <laughs> you know, um, I, I didn't like engineering. So I, I know what my gifts are. When we operate fully in our gifts, and that's going to make us extraordinary. That's going to make us phenomenal. And so it's up to us to hold ourselves to high expectations so that we can be the extraordinary people that, that we were meant to be. Dan, I, uh, every time I talk to you, I get more and more inspired. Um, you know, I, I firmly believe <laughs> you, uh, you and I are, are, are somewhere brothers in DNA somehow. <laughs> um, brothers from another mother. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> absolutely. But, uh, you know, Dan, you, you, you absolutely nailed it again. Um, everything you've said, it's such an honor to talk with you all the time. I'm so glad we were able to finally record something so that the world can hear your voice. And, um, 
you know, you if you want to just really quick, I know we're going to put a blog together and talk about uh, your background and in, in, in events. Is any up, uh, upcoming events that uh, people need to be aware of? So, no, I don't, I don't have it nailed down, but I tell you what, um, I am going to do an event in March. So this this is me, and you can be my accountability partner. So I'm going to do an event in March, and so you can check the IDB, the IBWfoundation.org website, and um, when 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 I have it, I will I will post it on there, and I'll, I'll put some type of um, discount code for um, the extra um, choosing extraordinary podcast. Well, th- thank you very much for that, and um, and what's the best way to contact you if people want to hire you for any kind of public speaking or uh, coaching services? Uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, so you can use my my phone number, and that is seven seven three four five six. One zero six four, again seven seven three four five six one zero six four, or you can go to danduster.net, danduster.net, and um, you shoot me an email or I'll, uh, there, there's a uh, form that you can fill out on there. Dan, thank you so much. Uh, you are absolutely extraordinary, and I thank you for spending the time with us tonight. And um, continue to choose the extraordinary because we need you to. Um, thank you so much. Hey, Adam, sincerely, my brother, thank you for what you do. Uh, you are a constant inspiration to me. Uh, I know that you're there for me. I mean, like you said, a brother from another mother. If I needed something, it's it's heartwarming to know that I can call you. And w- whether it's receiving inspiration or, or some other type of support, I know you'd be there. And, and I appreciate and applaud what you do uh, for yourself and for others. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Dear Dan, more and more I become aware that there are no coincidences in life. In 2002, you and I began a friendship that was by no means a coincidence. We both shared a purpose to understand our own internal dialogue for the means of helping others to understand theirs. We began this journey studying neuro-linguistic programming together. It's inspiring to know how we have grown and worked with so many groups and individuals since then. I often think of the work your great-grandmother, Ida B. Wells, began many years ago. She was definitely a pioneer, but more importantly, it was her extraordinary soul that guided her to have a passion for justice and fighting for the rights of any person regardless of age, gender, race, and nationality. The challenges she faced were massive, yet with any extraordinary being, she endured. And we are all grateful she did. Your work is just important, Dan. Convincing our youth that they matter and can have an impact in this world is no light work. You have been passed the torch with the responsibility that many weren't ready to accept, yet you were. This speaks volumes of your character and mission. Your willingness to keep a voice for rights that matter is noticed and welcomed. You are aligned with the greater good that is non-negotiable. Your compass is connected true north, and your compassion for others to know they can transform and help others to heal, regardless of their actions in the past, is very needed in a world that takes pride in unwarranted judgment and comparison. It is my hope that more people engage in your ability to speak, guide, and mentor our youth. We need it. Dan, you are extraordinary. Stay the course. Stay extraordinary. We need you to be. Coach Adam. Welcome to the Extraordinary Me podcast, where ordinary people choose the extraordinary. Hosted by Coach Adam.